Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you are with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hello, Darren. It's Wednesday, the 14th of December today, and this will probably be our second last episode for the year, but our last discussion of the news. As always, we have too much news to choose from, and Alan, I'm pretty tired. It's been a long year, and I just have not had the energy to keep up with everything that's happened over the past month. Once again, I would refer our listeners to Isabella Keith's indispensable weekly column, The Week in Australian Foreign Affairs published by the AIIA's Australian Outlook. For all the info you need on what the government has been doing, for those of you who have more energy than me. So, Alan, my proposal for today is we each pick a couple of things we want to talk about and go from there. And despite my tiredness, I'm nominating myself to go first since there is one thing that did get me quite excited. Is that okay with you, Alan? Take it away, Darren. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I am going to stay well within our lane on this podcast, though, Alan, because I just want to talk about another speech. Indeed, another speech by Australia's Foreign Minister, Penny Wong. And yes, I appreciate that exactly one episode ago, we devoted quite some time to Wong's Whitlam oration but she's given us yet more content with a capital C, this time in Washington, D.C. at the Carnegie Endowment, having travelled to the U.S. with Deputy Prime Minister and Defence Minister Richard Miles for the annual OSMIN 2 plus 2 meetings. And as our listeners well know now, we get pretty excited by speeches on this podcast. But even having said that, I need to take it up a level. Every listener who has an enduring interest in Australian foreign policy should read this speech. When I think of the best speeches in the last 10 years on foreign policy, I typically think of two. Former Prime Minister Paul Keating's speech in Beijing in 2013, which I've mentioned numerous times before on the podcast, and Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Shin Lung's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2019. And the reason I focus on those two is because they've only become more relevant since they were delivered. And I, at least, feel compelled to return to them. So while I might be overreacting, I did wonder while reading this speech from Minister Wong whether it has the potential to be similarly enduring in its importance. But before I get to the four reasons why, Alan, can I first check in with you? When you read this speech for the first time, did you react as strongly as I did? Well, look, I have to say I didn't really, Darren. And that's why I was keen for you to go first. I thought it was a very good speech and one which was very much in the tradition of such speeches, reasserting the depth and continuity in Australian support for the alliance. In fact, it specifically talked about how both sides of Australian politics claim the origin story of the alliance. So I was a bit perplexed. What what excited you about it? Well, to begin with, Alan, we've talked a lot about the dominant theme of the Labor government's foreign policy being listening. Indeed, in this speech, Wong used the phrase listening above lecturing to describe Australia's engagement with the region. But she did the exact opposite in this speech vis-a-vis the United States. I read the speech as a surprisingly direct lecture to our American friends that was repeating one point in particular, that the US needs to do more in terms of economic leadership in the region. 
She set up the argument very well, very tactfully, highlighting that US leadership formed the basis of a highly successful post-war economic order. But then she noted that today, the region does not want to take sides in great power rivalry, which is the US's main concern. Instead, they are seeking transparent partnerships that, quote, create economic and social value. And then she cited her Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense colleagues on the US side, as well as US strategy documents, to highlight that the Americans too believe in the importance of US policy creating rather than forcing choices and otherwise improving people's lives. But of course, as we've discussed, and as everyone knows, that leadership is currently missing. But my eyes widened when she raised not just the US's withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but also their withdrawal from the Transatlantic TTIP agreement, doing so in a way that I could only describe as critical. I mean, the TTIP is not really any of our business, except that it speaks to how seriously we see the need for US economic leadership globally. But then we get to the direct lecture part, and I've got three quotes here. One, US policy needs to be based on a clear understanding of what the rest of the Indo-Pacific wants. Two, our national interest lies in being at every table where economic integration in Asia is being discussed. Now, I note she's talking about Australia there, but to me, it's clear she's saying the US should not see things any differently. And three, a commitment to the region requires greater economic engagement in itself central to achieving a more favorable equilibrium. So I asked myself, what's the logic of lecturing over listening? Washington is obviously not suffering from a listening deficit, though. It's the most important country in the world and our most important ally. And I don't think Australia is really expecting to change US policy. We all understand the severe domestic constraints facing the Biden administration. Indeed, that fact was confirmed that same week when the Biden administration sharply, and I think unjustifiably, criticized a WTO ruling against steel tariffs imposed by the Trump administration, which rely on a broad, and I would say a harmfully broad, definition of national security. So I don't think the speech was necessarily about changing US policy. It was, I guess, first telling the truth but also maybe on a strategic level, it's another dimension or another element of rehabilitating Australia's image in our region. If we're going to be credible listeners to our neighbours, we need to take what we hear and act upon it. And we know how strongly the region feels about the need for more US leadership. So I think of this speech, this lecture, as another contribution to Australia creating space for us to work with our partners in the region. And lest the Americans think that we're throwing them under a bus to win brownie points with our neighbours, Wong preempts that by saying, quote, the value of our engagement with the region is central to the value that we add in our alliance with the United States. So Alan, that was really quite stunning to me. And I've only given the first of my four points, but I want to get your reaction here. Am I overreacting, do you think? Okay, okay. Well, look, a caution first. If I can channel Joni Mitchell, I've looked at speeches from both sides now, and I can still remember feeling a bit bemused when I later read commentators drawing complex interpretations from language that I knew had been written in a mad rush on the back of an envelope just before a deadline with no deep reflection other than to get the paragraphs to hang together more or less coherently. Now, I'm sure this sort of thing doesn't happen at all in this professional government, but even if there is a danger of sometimes reading too much into speeches, 
that's really not the problem of the listeners or the readers. Once speeches are out there in public, they become themselves an element of foreign policy and open to interpretation. So I confess I was reading what the minister said within a certain conventional framing. You had fresh eyes. Keep going. Keep persuading. Okay, well, point number two, which is related to the first, Wong says, quote, the region sees development, connectivity, digital trade, and the energy transition as vital domains in which consistent US leadership and influence would be welcome, end quote. I'd start by noting that old-fashioned trade and goods did not make that list. I think everyone has given up on US market access for the moment. She then continues, quote, plainly, there is a view in Washington that US allies must work together on principles of collective security. But we have reached a stage in the evolution of our alliances where they will increasingly require a fully developed economic dimension as well. Later, she says, or elsewhere, she says, Australia too has a big job in supporting enhanced American economic engagement in the Indo-Pacific. This has to be a core alliance priority, end quote. So I also see this as a big deal. The foreign minister is saying our security alliance has to evolve to go beyond just military cooperation and deterrence into the economic domain. Now, some of our listeners might be familiar with the discourse around a so-called economic Article 5. Article 5 is the most important clause in the NATO treaty, which says an attack on one ally is an attack on all, and it forms the basis of NATO's collective security. An economic Article 5 would, in theory, extend the deterrent to forms of economic warfare, perhaps even economic coercion, which is why you'd seen it raised in analyses of economic coercion experienced by Australia. Could we make some economic Article 5? Now, I don't think that's feasible, but what Wong is doing here is flipping a reactive, securitized, and I think unrealistic concept, an economic Article 5, into a positive agenda that is responsive to the region. It's saying to the region, yes, first and foremost, we are a defensive alliance worried about traditional questions of military power and collective security. But in today's world, if we are genuinely serious about having a meaningful impact on the region, we must, we must find a way to use our combined capabilities as a force for economic good. So the speech isn't about setting a concrete agenda. It's about trying to persuade our American friends of a lesson that they themselves first told the world in Trump's 2017 national security statement, that economic security is national security. But that doesn't just apply to us, it applies to everyone. Or as Wong says in her conclusion, quote, we have to compete not just in the traditional domain set out by the alliance, we need to offer the region sustained value. Alan, how do you feel about the alliance potentially acquiring an economic dimension? Yeah, look, interesting. I'd missed that US economic engagement as a, quote, core alliance priority. The new element here is alliance because Australian interest in engaging the US in the economic growth of the region goes back a very long way. Keeping strategic links across the Pacific was quite openly one of Australia's aims in the development of APEC. Maintaining the strength of the alliance 
was one of the reasons we wanted to negotiate a free trade agreement with the US, and it was certainly one of the reasons we were able to get it through Congress. So, look, I guess what I would say here is that the idea of formally embedding economics into the alliance as opposed to the broader relationship, just seems a bit unnecessary to me. Yeah, I I suppose I see it as a necessary embrace of a geoeconomic logic that merges economics and security on the grounds that we have maybe no hope of shifting an increasingly hawkish DC consensus unless we make the case that US national security is built in part on economic leadership. Regardless, let's move on. I'll group my last two reasons together. My third point was Wong's section on crisis, de-escalation and reassurance. The Biden administration has spoken lately of the desire to build guardrails in the China bilateral relationship. But my understanding is that this has not yet been embraced fully by Beijing. So Wong quotes JFK, She invokes the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis and how these led to the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Treaty, uh, amongst other things, to make the point that even the greatest of adversaries, Washington and Moscow, were able to create, quote, more effective communication, end quote. This is primarily a message for Beijing, but she addresses both superpowers, I think, when she says, quote, we need to do more than establish military deterrence to conflict. We need to work together to create the incentive for dialogue, end quote. This is a call to focus on reassurance, to remind everyone deterrence, which is the promise that unacceptable costs will follow undesired behavior, is not enough. You also need to promise that unacceptable costs will not follow if the undesired behavior is not undertaken. Now, perhaps... Other world leaders have invoked efforts by the US and the USSR to manage competition during the Cold War to make the reassurance argument in the current US-China context, but I cannot recall anyone being as detailed, rigorous, and explicit on this point, and doing so right in DC. I think everyone should read that for themselves. The fourth and final one might only matter to me as a theorist, Alan, but after mocking me, mocking me, On our podcast, when she appeared for our 100th episode for my penchant for building theoretical models, I want to thank the foreign minister for helping crystallize a model for me in the early part of her speech when she unpacked the logic of the alliance. Here is the quote. It is more than history or tradition. It is a living expression of two countries aligned by who we are, what we stand for, and what we want. End quote. Now, this might be obvious to many of our listeners, but its impact on me was profound because it clarified a three-part model to explain, more generally, comity and cooperation in international relations. And if we break it up, I'll then quote the minister at each piece. So you have identity, where she says, we're two of the world's most diverse countries, both home to ancient cultures and generations of immigrants. Values, she says, Two robust democracies whose people's voices and values are heard and protected by the rule of law. And interests, quote, two countries who share an interest in a world that is open, stable, prosperous, where all countries can make their own sovereign choices, end quote. So we have identity, values, interests. Now, why did I get so excited? Well, I hate to be that teacher grading and comparing submitted assessments, but I'm going to move across now to the speech given by Deputy Prime Minister Miles in Tokyo, 
itself worthy of a close read and a longer conversation for multiple reasons. But I want to focus on how he opens the speech, where he describes what Australia and Japan have done bilaterally in recent months, and we've talked about the frenetic activity there. But then he turns to why we're doing these things together. And the first thing he says on this is, quote, Japan and Australia share a profound commitment to democracy, open economies, and free societies, end quote. Now, that's patently true, but it rubs up against the problem that many of the regional partners we work with do not share those profound commitments. And Alan, we've talked about how this is a problem in the Biden national security statement. It's a problem for how we talk about the Ukraine war, and it's a problem for the narrative we want to project into the region. And I think there is still work to do on how we get that messaging right. But I think the answer might start with the identity, values, interests formulation. We share all three with the US, with the UK, New Zealand. We share values and interests with Japan. And we share many interests with regional partners, but also, for example, aspects of our identity. And I think of Wong's speech in Malaysia in particular on that point, and even some values. But I think we need to keep each pillar analytically distinct and then approach each engagement opportunity by asking what is the best way to frame our desire to engage and how to present that framing and structure that engagement in a way that is consistent with our engagements with others. Everything is connected and I think this model offers us a compass of sorts to navigate those interconnections. Alan, any any comment from you? Ah, Darren, your time has come. After all those gentle digs I've had at you over the episodes, you are entitled to this moment of triumph. And look, it is actually a seriously good example of what models in international relations are and can do and how we all have them, even practitioners, even politicians, and even when we think all we are doing is responding pragmatically to the problems that present themselves. So well spotted. But equally important is the complexities you point to when we are dealing with regional partners. And we've certainly seen a couple of recent examples of that challenge. Indeed. Well, thank you, Alan. It's your turn. Uh, and you foreshadowed that you wanted to start with the Osmin meetings that brought our foreign minister and defense minister to Washington and then on to Tokyo. What did you make of those? Well, just a couple of comments on the Osmin and Japan Australia 2 plus 2 meetings. I won't go into the details, but I did want to mention a few headline differences from the past, as well as the differences between the Washington and Tokyo meetings. In the Osmin communique, there were plenty of small changes from last year's communique that reflected the differences between the coalition and Labor governments here. But going back to the point you were making before about the alliance and the economy, Darren, the freshest new section came on climate change where the statement this year declares that, quote, the principles emphasise the need for urgent action on climate change and the importance of a clean energy transition, committing to pursue these as a new pillar in the US-Australia alliance. So again, an integration of economic or environmental issues with the alliance. It's also interesting that the bold statement of a joint commitment to free trade, which we see in the Australia-Japan Declaration, has no equivalent in the Osmin statement, and that support for nuclear disarmament 
which we noted was so prominent in the albanese Kishida joint statement a couple of weeks ago, wasn't mentioned at all in the Osmin statement. Now, that's not unusual and it's not concerning, but it is a reminder that even with the commitment to close joint cooperation between the US, Japan and Australia, each of us brings different interests and different priorities to the table. Alan, you expressed scepticism about the utility of bringing economics into the alliance per se versus the broader relationship. How does that sit with adding climate change in, which is obviously even more urgent? Do you see the merit there or would you prefer it was kept separate from the alliance relationship per se? No, I think we need to differentiate clearly between the Australia-US alliance and the australia US relationship, which is deeper and broader and just as important. So I think it was very useful and significant that climate change was mentioned in the Osmin communique, but I wouldn't myself frame it as part of the alliance rather than the relationship. A new pillar of the alliance, yeah. A new pillar of the alliance, indeed. Well, summit season is is over now. We've done with the big bilaterals for the year, Alan. Do we have enough data now to describe the outline of an Albanese government foreign policy? do you think? Oh, I think we've got enough outline to describe an Albanese Wong foreign policy because we've got far more on the record from the foreign minister. But as we've discussed before, one of the impressive achievements of the new government has been the unity with which all its ministers have spoken on international issues. So you really don't get a sense of divisions within them. And I think the answer now is that we can see the shape of such a foreign policy and it begins with identity although not the fragmented identity politics that we've come to associate with some varieties of progressive policy. This is much more about national identity. It's the idea that Australian identity incorporates many strands from our First Nations to the most recent immigrants, and that this gives strength and resilience to our society, and importantly for international relations, it provides a means of connection with other countries. We've seen this, do you you remember the first statement that the uh, Anthony Albanese made in election night, his victory statement, where he began with the government's full commitment to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and Right through to Penny Wong's Whitlam oration, which we discussed last time, she's repeated in many different ways the principle that, quote, foreign policy starts with who we are, it is how we project ourselves to the world, and what we project to the world about who we are is an element of our national power. Now, this approach underlines the multiple strands of connection between Australia and the outside world, so it broadens the dimensions of foreign policy. It doesn't walk away from traditional friendships and foreign policy priorities, but it does indisputably assert that broad brush identifiers like the West or the Anglosphere are insufficient to define Australia. So it adds an inherent complexity to Australian policy. The second change we've seen is one of focus. The pattern and pace of travel by the PM and ministers leaves no doubt of the priority they place on Southeast Asia and the South Pacific. That's hardly new in Australian foreign policy. Both regions have come to be seen in recent years more as fields on which things happen 
That is, you know, asylum seekers sail through there or terrorists come from there or China fights for influence over them rather than as actors whose views will affect and shape our own. The key institutions of both regions, ASEAN and the Pacific Islands Forum, are much more prominent in the way the government thinks about its diplomacy. We've already mentioned climate change, and that's certainly a huge part of the emerging foreign policy. Continuity has been clearest in areas of the alliance and security. ANZUS, AUKUS, the Quad have been reaffirmed and cemented in. On China, we've seen a significant change in language, and that's important. But What about substance? Well, there's been some change there. Both sides dropped their earlier preconditions for the resumption of high-level discussions. But look, I I frankly think we need another 12 months before we can say with confidence that there is space to move forward on other issues. But both sides seem to know what they're doing and professional diplomacy is operating at both ends, and that's better than we had before. Third has been a tonal change. Every statement almost by every minister dealing with the outside world has included some variation on the theme that we are listening respectfully. This is a useful change from lecturing incessantly, which is what Australians have tended to do in the past. Uh, So there's modesty and lack of certainty about the expression of Australian policy, which is new and I think, sensible. We haven't seen all that much new in the area of multilateral diplomacy and the rules-based order, but that's just a factor of time, I think. We saw the minister's recommitment to multilateralism in her speech to the UN General Assembly, and on human rights, she set out the government's approach in a thoughtful newspaper article this week. Of course, 2023 will bring much more, a review of development policies already underway, and there's no doubt that the Defence Strategic Review will have foreign policy implications when it's done. So anyway, that's where I see things at the moment, Darren. Mm. I'm sure we'll return to this next month in January when we look back over 2022 and forward to 2023. But right now, what do you see as the primary risks to the coherence or to the stability of this overall approach? Are there principal contradictions to be resolved, or perhaps just random shocks that will force us into uncomfortable places? I'll have to think about that. But off the top of my head, risks to coherence, the direction of American policy as we get closer to the presidential elections, risks to stability, the way the Ukraine war develops, contradictions to be resolved, the difficulty of aligning Australian policy with that of the major ASEANs, random shocks Melanesia. Not that it will shock, but that it could. Well, it's worth observing that the Fiji election is happening as we record, Alan. Well, my second item picks up on this theme of threats and shocks, which I want to do. I'm actually sort of, I guess, here foreshadowing a research agenda I'm considering for next year myself. And it starts with the word polycrisis, which is a term that was not coined but certainly popularised by the economic historian Adam Tooze earlier this year in his indispensable chart book newsletter. But before I define it, I want to give two quick examples for why it matters. The first comes from a depressing Reuters piece I read recently, which describes the boom in coal demand and production sparked by the energy crisis arising from the Ukraine invasion. All across the world, but especially in Europe, coal is surging, coal power plants are coming back online, all because of this immediate, urgent need 
to keep the lights on. Of course, one hopes that longer term, you know, this crisis accelerates a faster transition to renewables. But we also know of the need to bring emissions down right now for us to have any hope of containing or limiting global warming. The second was criticism of Egypt as the organiser of the COP27 climate meetings just last month for a lack of ambition in setting lower emissions targets. And there was a lot achieved at the COP27. I'm sure we'll actually talk about it in the new year. But if I remember correctly, the response to this criticism from broad swathes of the development world was that they simply cannot afford lower targets right now. 2022 has seen a massive tightening of global macroeconomic conditions due primarily to the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to fight inflation and the corresponding strengthening of the US dollar. But 60% of all foreign exchange reserves and 40% of all capital raising is in dollars. And so we've seen something like 90 different developing countries undergoing currency devaluations, which raises the burden of dollar-denominated debt, the cost of importing essential goods, and further drains liquidity from a system already struggling to recover from the pandemic. And that's before you get to the energy and food price shocks that we saw, natural disasters, and so forth. So both of these two examples are manifestations of systemic risk, where threats to the functionality of critical systems such as the global energy system or the global financial system, are big problems not just because the collapse of those systems themselves is inherently bad, but because the impacts extend into other critical systems. And in both my examples, that second affected system is climate. So what is a polycrisis? Well, there isn't an agreed upon definition yet, but to me, it can be a useful concept if it encompasses the following characteristics. First, a combination of three or more systemic risks, and there are at least three big ones right now. One, the global balance of power and geopolitics. Two, climate. And three, what I think has probably tipped things over the edge this year, tightening global financial conditions and the end of cheap money. Each of these are vital systems, the collapse of which threatens the others. What are the practical implications of the polycrisis concept? Well, this is where I want to do the work. But to start, first, it speaks to an ever greater need for interdisciplinarity and the breaking of intellectual silos. I've spent the past 10 years myself trying to do this between economics and security, but I can see now that the challenge is much broader. And I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I feel myself being pulled beyond geoeconomics as my core focus and really broadening my horizons. Two, policymakers need to understand the complexity and severity of the stresses facing our region and the world. In particular, not just that the region doesn't want to be part of major power rivalry, but that even if they wanted to, they simply don't have the time or resources to do it. Their concerns are much more critical and immediate than picking geopolitical sides. And three, as the Australian government is reconsidering its defence policy via the strategic review and its development policy, we might need to think about how to reorient all of our external policies to focus on what is essentially crisis identification and response, broadly defined, as the principal pathway to influence and the type of regional order that we want, rather than the lens of strategic competition. So, Alan, I'll stop there. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen many faddish intellectual concepts come and go, but you've also acknowledged the complexity and the challenge of the strategic environment we're now facing. What's your sense on whether we are equipped with the conceptual tools to handle these challenges? 
I can't add much to your excellent outline, Darren. I agree that the nature of the crisis we face is new in its complexity. So have we got the right conceptual framework? No way. It's not enough for us simply to agree that the world is more dangerous and uncertain than at any time since, well, take your pick. What our policy makers need is a better handle on how exactly it's different and how the dangers interact. So not only an agenda for you, but for our leaders and for the podcast too. Absolutely. Well, Alan, was there one more thing you wanted to mention? You've teased your word of the year to me in our conversations recently. Can you share with us your current favourite? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, last year's word was sovereignty, and this was a triumph. (laughs) It's continued its strong showing during the year, but there have also been some new arrivals. Some of them have come up on this podcast. Listening and respectfully or maybe listening respectfully, is one. Guardrails, which you talked about, is another. It was a late entry, but uh, had a strong showing down the straight. My current favourite for Word of the Year, though, is statecraft. The word's been around since 1642, according to my Shorter Oxford Dictionary, but I can't remember seeing it in uh, quite as many speeches and commentaries on Australian public policy as we've seen this year. It's a reflection, no doubt, of the multifaceted needs of responding to the uh, poly crisis you've just been talking about. How about you? Well, I'm actually reminded that the Collins Dictionary's word of this year is permacrisis, which they say is a word describing the feeling of living through a period of war, inflation and political instability. So I think my word of the year has to be polycrisis. Anyway, we'll leave it there, but certainly we have a lot to talk about in our review episode next month. So let's finish up with reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? Two podcasts on Australian foreign policy. Uh, Catherine Murphy's interview with Penny Wong on The Guardian's Australian Politics podcast. And secondly, Rory Medcalf's interview with Gareth Evans, one of uh, Penny Wong's distinguished predecessors in the uh, ANU's National Security podcast series. They're both really excellent discussions, but More importantly, they give an interesting insight, I think, into what an activist foreign policy can mean at two very different times in world history. And and if you have a chance to take a break over the holidays and recover from your from your tiredness, Darren, the new season of Slow Horses is running on Apple. It's not maybe as acerbic as the Slough House novels by McHeron on which it is based, but absolutely perfect for a lazy summer binge watch. I'll get to it after I watch the Star Wars series and or Alan, which is definitely at the top of my list. And I think The Mandalorian is coming in 2023, so we can look forward to that as well. My recommendation is or has a clickbait title, but the piece went on to deliver everything it promised. It's a column from the New York Times' Ross Douthat entitled Hootie and the Blowfish and the End of History, within which he links three of my favorite 1990s bands, Hootie, Counting Crows, and Dave Matthews Band, all of the mellow dude bro rock genre to Francis Fukuyama's famous end of history argument, which I think I might actually want to revisit in our review episode next year as well. Self-recommending as they say. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. While we're planning one more special episode, we'll offer our best wishes for the holiday season now to all of you, our listeners, 
Thank you again for listening to us throughout the year and for being patient when there were some longer gaps. And thanks to the many of you who have come up to us and said such kind things about the podcast to us in person. Meeting a listener who finds the pod worthwhile is as thrilling and gratifying now as it was in the beginning. And we're very grateful for the five to 6,000 of you who are now tuning in each episode. And thanks also to Walter Kalnagi for research and audio editing today and to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Until next time.